Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Today on Relay Chain, we have Aaron Henshaw. He's the CTO of Bison Trails. And um, small world story, we went to the same university like 12 years ago. So um, haven't seen each other in a while, but now we're back. So welcome to the show. Aaron, can you do like a quick intro of yourself? Yeah, for sure. It's awesome to reconnect in such like a roundabout way. But uh, yeah, I'm Aaron Henshaw. I am the CTO and co-founder of Bison Trails. We started Bison Trails really to lower the barriers to running infrastructure with blockchains. Uh, it came out of the need of both uh, myself and Joe, my co-founder, um, not this Joe, Joe Laluz. Um, we tried to build some stuff on Ethereum, various like playing around with DEXs or wallet apps, and it was just so painful to work with the infrastructure that you needed. And we spent so much time on that. And I think really like I had a bit of a roundabout way into crypto. Um, it was something that we always... I always was interested in, but never really played around with it too much. Like saw Bitcoin, maybe bought some and used it to buy like gift cards a very long time ago, but never kept it, never thought of it as like a, an investment or something. Um, and then I had started a previous company called Grand Street that was uh, for creative technology. Uh, it was a marketplace and we sold that to Etsy. And during our time at Etsy, we had some time to like think and reflect, um, and especially afterwards. And I think crypto was just this like really massively appealing ecosystem. It combined a lot of my early interests. Like I have a dual major in economics, computer science. Um, and so with that and all of the excitement going on, it was just hard to not dig into. And then I think once you're, once you're in, you're, you're really in. Yeah, for sure. Um, so like you guys had a kind of interesting approach and I know from like hearing from Joe that you guys started a proof of work mining facility um, like in the Pacific Northwest uh, before you got started. And at that point, did you already know that you wanted to focus on proof of stake or were you thinking more along the lines of staying in proof of work? I don't think we knew in any direction what we were going to do there. Uh, I think that as we were diving into the blockchain space and starting to look more and more at infrastructure, it became clear to both of us that we didn't really understand how like blocks were formed and how the actual like stuff behind the scenes happened. And so we started reading about that. And one of the ways in which we learn, I think, is just by doing. And so we started with like buying a couple miners and like some GPUs. And it just kind of like spiraled out of control a little bit in the sense that we like realized that there was a pretty compelling business. We had a friend that had introduced us to someone who had really cheap power. And we just were like, oh, this is cool. Like, let's definitely build this out. We think this could be a good investment vehicle the way that we structured it. Yeah, I, I don't know that we knew at that point. Really, like the proof of stake focus came because while you're building a cryptocurrency mine, there's a lot of like starts and stops. There's like really moments of intense work. Uh, you're working with like electric contractors, the state, the city, this power, these power companies. And then once like build out starts and you have the engineering designs, you kind of wait. And so while we were idle, we started to look at things like LivePeer and the Cosmos testnet and Tezos and just started like running infrastructure in the cloud in our spare time. And that 
you know, it was like a happy accident. It was in line with infrastructure. It was in line with like a new way to produce blocks. And I think, yeah, there was no plan. It was just, yeah, like a, like a snowball rolling down a hill and it just kept going. Um, and I think what, what we realized eventually was that our skill sets, like as software entrepreneurs uh, over the last 10 years before that was really well suited to tackle the problem that proof of stake presented much more than proof of work, even though proof of work was interesting uh, because the it scales with capital, not necessarily with software or with people. It didn't speak as much to our strengths, even though it was really fun to build that mine and learn learn a ton. Yeah, I've like felt the pain of trying to build a proof of work mine myself, and like it is cool when you build your first mining rig, um, like at home. And then I remember like I had a six GPU Ethereum miner in like late 2016 or early 2017. And it was actually like heating my whole apartment. I lived in this like 400 square foot apartment and didn't turn on the heat once in the winter. Um, Or sometimes I would wake up in the morning and it would be like really cold. And I I was like, okay, the miner crashed in the middle of the night. Like, (laughs) um, (laughs) but yep, I can uh, really relate. Uh, My very patient wife, I had our like open air like six GPU mining rigs, like four or five of them stacked in our living room and uh, actually on two sides of the house because it would flip the breakers if they were in the same side of the house and it heated everything. And I think as like, I think it was a summer approach. It was like, you got to get this out of here. This is crazy. But it was like a few months. Yeah, it's fun on that scale. And then like when you try to build something bigger, you quickly realize like you run into all these roadblocks and exactly what you said, like, this idle time where you're like waiting for a delivery and and all this stuff and it just doesn't scale the way that software does. So yeah, I, I guess like going more into Bison Trails and like maybe we should have started with this, but like just an overview of like what Bison Trail like. So you started like this proof of work stuff and then like what did this turn into um, for Bison Trails? Yeah, I think as we were coming off of the proof of work and spending time uh, looking at the new proof of stake networks, we just started like building the infrastructure ourselves and kind of managing it, like as you would think of uh, like a traditional DevOps role, like deploying it into the cloud, managing it, doing some like basic alerting and monitoring on it. And we we started to have people like ask us if they could delegate to us or like, and it wasn't necessarily something we understood would happen going into it. Um, and so I think as that became... As people started to ask us to use our infrastructure, we realized that there might be like a much bigger opportunity here. Um, and so we looked at the staking as a service model pretty closely. And I think we eventually evolved into understanding that if we could build a platform that enabled anybody to run their own staking as a service um, company or enable, you know, larger scale custodians and exchanges or large token holders to run their own infrastructure, we could actually be a really positive force um, in the ecosystem uh, for distribution, uh, delegation, different types of people running different types of infrastructure. And so that's essentially what we have built at this point. So uh, our users, our customers, they come to our platform and they have kind of like one-click deploy um, options for a Polkadot validator, for example. And then we help them through any of the like more technical stuff, like the 
you know, stash to controller to nominations, like some of those details. Um, and we do that across a, a bunch of networks. Yeah, I mean, like, this stuff is really hard. And even the people who like work on these protocols, a lot of them don't even understand like the staking, like just the staking aspect is very complicated. And a lot of people in the industry don't necessarily understand exactly the mechanics of it. Um, what would you say, like, from a general perspective, like not specific to one network, but like, what kind of work goes into setting up this kind of infrastructure? It's a very good question, and it's hard to answer uh, generically, like because each uh, protocol has its own nuances. But I guess that that in itself is the answer. Like to understand the infrastructure that you need to offer or that you need to run, you have to understand the protocol at a pretty base level. You have to understand its economic incentives. You have to understand the way that it wants to secure itself through its consensus mechanism. You need to understand the types of features that are enabled on it. And so you really need to become an expert in a protocol in order to run infrastructure against it. And then you have to look at the other people in the market who's also running infrastructure. What's like, how much does it cost? Like what's the resource requirements of this thing? relative to what the token price is and the inflation. So there's a lot of economics. There's a lot of like token, very specific crypto, like token modeling. Uh, and then there's all of the infrastructure aspects that is the cost, the operational overhead. How much does it cost to run a remote signer in an HSM? Like, how do you do this really secure? Are those options even available? What's like the acceptable levels of risk? Slashing and downtime penalties are like a huge part of that discussion. So yeah, I mean that's not like a specific clean answer, but it's uh it's hard. You have to really understand a protocol. And it helps to understand multiple protocols because you can start to model similarities and differences and then you can approach things from a product oriented perspective and how you think about what the right way to uh the right way to run infrastructure or the right things to offer. Yeah. So like out of all the protocols that you run, what are some of the similarities and differences that like have stood out to you? I mean, they all have private keys. So uh, <laughs> the public private keys is a, is a very consistent problem to solve. You know, coming up with really safe generic solutions, you can't come up with one for everything, but you can come up with a couple that handle most things. So that's a big one. Uh, Bringing up nodes quickly and bringing them down quickly is really important. So you can imagine from a read-write perspective, if you're a wallet and you have a bunch of users and you're using uh, like a guest node uh, and suddenly you get a huge spike in traffic, it would be really important to you to be able to add new nodes into your behind your load balancer. And in order to do that, you need like secure and verified snapshots that you can easily pull from. So, you know, the, that's something that they all of the blockchains have some degree of state and some like archival or pruned or like there's a range of data structures with tracing, without tracing, but you can always like store it. It's always on disk. Um, I think peer-to-peer -peer is like a, not all of the layer twos necessarily have peer-to-peer -peer, but all the layer ones use some some type of peer-to-peer -peer or whisper or you know what have you and so understanding how nodes talk to each other and look at each other and discover each other is really critical to like building infrastructure that actually works and is healthy 
yeah, I guess those are just a few. There's probably way, way more. Um, I could like keep going, but yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's plenty of those. Uh, and then there's a lot of differences. Yeah. So like, I guess like in a, in a staking model, I guess like, so what I kind of experienced in a proof of work mining setup is that I felt like I controlled actually very little of it. Like a lot of the modeling was based on, well, what's the price of this token and what's the difficulty and the hash rate. And, you know, I've outsourced my work to some data center. So like if I, if my machines crash, I kind of have to wait for them to go restart them. And I, I think proof of stake, there's probably a lot of similarities to that, but how do you like take control of as many of these aspects as possible so that you can guarantee like not only a good business for yourself, but good availability and everything for your users? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that comes down to just like operational excellence. So like the way that we would think about that is do we have monitoring and alerting um, in a way that we can take action against those things? And this is like always a moving target because these things are changing, but um are we introspecting actual chain data to make sure that the thing that we're looking at the logs for is actually happening? Are we looking at the logs to make sure that the things that we think are happening are happening? Are there really strong uh, ways to create like alerting metric pipelines? And then do we have the correct like backups for that? Like, do we have the correct run books and have they been tested? Have we like intentionally taken down a node on a testnet and tried to recover from it in order for us to provide a, high quality of service i think we have to have all of that and those are those are the things that we can control like we can control watching you know it, one of the like funniest things that we've never really quite been able to figure out and i don't know that we will is like if if like a couple of our nodes go down versus and so if there's something wrong with our infrastructure or if the whole network goes down it kind of looks the same to us and if a whole network goes down, it's not really worth like waking someone up at three in the morning because there's probably something bigger going on and we should wait till the next day. But there's no way to differentiate between those things. And in particular, Kusama, that happened um, semi-frequently, not at the beginning. And it's gotten obviously way more stable as we get into the Polkadot mainnet. But yeah, we've never quite solved that one. But yeah, the, the, I think what you're saying makes sense. Um there's a lot of things that we can't control for, like the number of validators in the active set is set by the network. And then there's a ton of other people attracting stake and running infrastructure and doing all this work. And those dynamics are constantly shifting. And so we also have to be able to respond on the infrastructure side, you know, with nominated proof of stake Polkadot. It's like you have to bring validators into the active set quickly or bring them out depending on your relative stake and based on what the next epoch says you should be doing. And so, you know, we've we focused on trying to build semi-generic solutions that make that really, really easy. But always there's like a component of really specific like code and uh, infrastructure that is for a given network. Yeah, I saw that you recently came out with a Polkadot um, like autoscaler that will set, that'll spin up the appropriate number of validators based on how many people are nominating you. Yep. Yeah. Which is, it's operationally awesome for our team because we don't have to have people doing it manually, but it's certainly like, you know, we're still testing it and it's a challenging problem because the protocol decides. And so we have to try to understand the algorithm, the protocol runs and get ahead of it in order to be slightly ahead of it. So we're always in like the right place. Yeah. It's definitely like a complicated problem to solve. And I think you guys are probably the farthest along in like getting to a 
I don't I don't think there is like an optimal solution, but um, like a better solution. <laughs> yeah, if you think of one, let me know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, with dots, it's important in particular because if you don't do those things, you won't be participating at like your highest, I guess, opportunity. And um, that makes running infrastructure more expensive. Um, that means that like you're not doing as well relative to other dot holders. Um, and it becomes really important to have those features baked in. Yeah, definitely. That's on the upside, but like a lot of people might characterize staking as like a picking up pennies in front of a steamroller type of activity. <laughs> um, so like, how do you think about risk just in general? Yeah, I mean, risk is varies network to network, but of course uh, networks that have the potential for anything above 10%, 50%, 100% slashing, we really have to think about our own exposure and the number of nodes that we run, even through our customers. And we have to try to, you know, sort of like temper our sales efforts and stuff, especially as we start to approach thresholds that would put our customers at risk. We have to communicate to them, like kind of what we run and how much we run and how that affects their stake. So, you know, the more infrastructure that we can build when it's supported, to re- minimize those risks, uh, obviously, the better off we are. Like we we build a lot of infrastructure and software that protects against operational mistakes, and so we have some double signing protection software that makes it really hard for an operator to bring two keys on like the same key online at the same time um, to prevent a double sign. Um, we support multiple cloud providers across many many regions, so that. It is very unlikely that all of those fail simultaneously. So we are much, much safer than if we were running in just one or two regions or cloud providers. Um, And we sort of spread that risk out by making sure that we're not, even our customers aren't like all in the same place because they could choose. And then if there's remote signing options available, that feels safer. So there's that. Then there's the whole security side of it, which is like, you know, if someone really owns us, like that's where the real double signing risk comes because then if they find a way while we take great efforts to secure our infrastructure and it's really well done there's nothing that is 100 percent secure and so there's always that risk and and that's the thing you know having using remote signing infrastructure using keys that are generated on hsms where those things are available can feel safer but those things are less flexible and aren't always in line with like the needs of a protocol um, you can look at like ETH2 and say there's not really BLS support for hardware or there's very, very little. And so what are you really supposed to do there? And there's and there's other options. You know, I think threshold signatures and spreading out your signing infrastructure um, is a really interesting area for research and development. I know like Polychain has done some stuff there that's really interesting. Also, like trusted execution environments, I think are very early but like sgx has its problems um but both google and amazon uh, have come out with their own trusted execution environments that are in the cloud and then there's some work being done to create like a more generic options so i think if you could combine threshold and t you could also produce some really really like cutting edge really safe work but we are not there Uh, i don't know that the industry is there yet either but that's where we we're looking to yeah, um, I think you just ticked off like a ton of notes that I had. Um, I'm like, <laughs> going to, like all of those topics. Um, 
No, we can go into any of them in more detail yeah. uh, to the extent that I, I'm capable of even <laughs> talking about them. I guess like one more risk factor that you kind of touched on at the beginning was just how much stake or like how many validators in the network you're actually controlling. And a lot of businesses, I mean, if you're if you're taking like some share in the rewards, like most businesses would, would want to get more clients and have more revenue. But in proof of stake networks, you, that kind of brings on additional risk as you take on a higher, like more control of a network. Um, and just like, how do you think about your relationship with the, the networks that you're supporting? Yeah, I mean, we want to be additive. We want to be helpful. We also want to build like a long-term sustainable business. The long-term sustainable business means that there's something in between running very little of the network and running too much of the network that's healthy because it's not sustainable if we are an existential risk to that network um, because that's not good for our long-term viability, right? Like if we get hacked and the whole thing goes down, that's bad for everybody, including us. But on the same time, like we can't run just like a very small percentage, like a very like a half a percent or a quarter percent for us to be a business that is able to actually work on things like threshold and trusted execution environment software. Like we need the revenue to move the industry forward. So I think like the way that we try to approach the problem and it's not perfect is we look at each network and we look at the consensus mechanism and we look at the slashing conditions and we look at the risks and we try to pick something that's reasonable uh, based on like what the network size is and and like how meaningful of a revenue stream we can create per validator. And so we just stay inside of those ranges as a company. And I think that there's certainly other areas of like R&D for us where we could push past some of those thresholds depending on who actually has control or access to their own nodes. Um, but that would have to be verifiably controlled. And that's a that's also a really hard problem that we've started to like toy around with, I would say. Like we've had some conversations, we have some like little sketches, um, but nothing that like is not, not this year, right? Maybe, maybe next year. Yeah, but keeping everything like verifiably independent so that, that like or fault independent anyway. Yeah, and it's not just staking infrastructure. Like there's it's just every company has different security and risk tolerance for all of their blockchain infrastructure. And so, you know, some people would only use an external provider if there's some sort of uh switch like that some sort of verifiable way to prove that like we don't we can't do anything to your infrastructure yeah and then like i guess like we've mostly talked about staking and that's probably what most people know you for um but what do you think of blockchain infrastructure beyond staking yeah i mean i think it's it's enormous um and like we're at the beginning of this whole like industry's life cycle so i don't know what the future will hold and and what types of infrastructure we will build. Um, our goal is to build a, a non-custodial infrastructure platform um, that services the needs of a growing and changing, rapidly evolving industry. Staking is a really good product for us, and it it is something that that has a lot of traction. But you know, there's the the other one, which is like very, I think more clear and there's a lot more providers out there, but just offering query and transaction style nodes. So reading from and writing to the blockchain, like pushing transactions out, reading blockchain state, that's something that everybody has to use. You know, Infura is the like broad one for the Ethereum ecosystem, but that's more of a shared 
infrastructure. Like I know that they have different products, but that's kind of how I think about it. Um, but all wallets, all dApps, everything has to interact with those types of nodes. And so as adoption increases across many different blockchains, like more and more read and write infrastructure needs to exist. Um, so that's, I think, a huge opportunity. It's a huge need um, to make those things reliable, redundant, secure. So we, we offer that now, but uh, we're pretty quiet about it, I guess. So it's not, this isn't an announcement, but <laughs> we do we do offer some uh, clearing transaction infrastructure to some partners. And then I think there's a big road into data um, where like, I like to say that internally, so it's helpful to say that like data is part of the infrastructure of blockchain, like they are made of data. And so ultimately building data products is part of offering infrastructure to, to the community. Um, and so indexers and push notifications, there's not like, you know, we have a whole kind of concept roadmap here. Um, it's really hard to do scalably across many networks because they're also specific. And then, you know, I, you could just keep going, right? Like we're at this like base layer of like a node and then maybe the data that's on the node. But then what are the things that you can build on top of that? Um, what are the unique features that a platform like ours can actually offer? Yeah, so the future is, yeah, expansive. And I don't know what direction we'll take, but we have a lot of ideas kicking around internally and we're watching a lot of things as they unfold. Yeah, I mean, I agree with, pretty much everything you just said. I, I, the more I've been around, the more I see that like indexing and block explorer type of uh, functionality is really necessary. Almost every day somebody asks a question in our chat room, like, hey, can I get you know X from the node? And it's like, no, you need, to, you need an indexer for that. <laughs> um, yep. And uh, I like just, I mean, and also like for auditing and stuff like, in Bitcoin and Ethereum, it's pretty simple. You can just see like, okay, here's the parameters of this function and this is what happens. But in blockchains like Polkadot and like a lot of the newer, more complex ones, there's so much logic that's happening under the hood and just trying to find out like, hey, what are all the transactions in the history that have affected this account or something? Um, that that would be super valuable and we don't have anything that's really like that. Yep. I mean, we're actually looking into it for Polkadot now um, because it's a huge need. If as you said, anybody who's running this infrastructure, especially staking infrastructure, that is a company that has investors and a board and people like oversight, like they have to report the income in a way that is like understandable to accountants and tax organizations and all of those things. And yeah, you just like can't the data, the data structures of blockchains are built for very specific things. And they're really good at those things. And they're very bad at the things that these <laughs> these types of queries that you'd have to make um and so yeah i think yeah as you said that's it's a it's a big need and it's there's some companies that i think work on it um and i think there's some people that are doing really good work there and i think that um there's also a lot of room to grow into that as these new networks but and and just to slightly push back against like the ethereum stuff is easy like some of the layer twos that use smart contracts that have their own tokens, like when you try to parse out what's happening, some of them, you know, they don't hold state or have transactions that hold state uh, in a way that you would think. And so you have to reconstruct the entire history of that smart contract to understand what balances are. Yeah. So we've done a little bit of that and 
it takes a lot longer usually than you'd expect just for like a single set of smart contracts that re- represents a protocol could because it's all the logic which is more like similar i think to polka dot and some of these other newer protocols yeah actually i had never even thought about trying to index um layer two data that sounds like another like a whole can of worms there to get into it's really valuable i mean i think like it's a huge value that we provide to our customers yeah and what we are certainly thinking about ways to make that more open and, and usable to, to external parties yeah so going back to like a little bit what we talked about earlier with like TEEs and um, like remote threshold signatures, what do you think are some of the biggest opportunities um, for like infrastructure providers to harness? I mean, I think there's a few. Uh, I mean, the the first, the easiest one, I, th- I mean, not that any of it is easy, but the, the easiest one, I think, is if you could have thresholds that were in two cloud providers that were close enough to meet the block expectation times. And so I guess the, the first opportunity is like the validation of blocks and, and the, the proposals and the signatures that happen there. And if you could generate those safely and be able to back them up in an encrypted way inside of these trusted execution environments and provide signing, the ability for them to sign a message and spit it out and be able to do it to two or three of those across different cloud providers, then you're you're relying on multiple different architectures for security. And so, I mean, you could imagine like, imagine you had an SGX one and the, I forget the names right now, but like the AWS one and the Google Cloud one, like you would, all three of those systems would have to be exploited simultaneously and not patched as well as your own system, which is like probably super unlikely. Like it's, it's, and and then we can look at opportunities to, you know, insure against that because it's it's much more provably there's a there's a much, much lower chance of leaking all of those keys at the same time. And so a single provider offering that I think would be a, a game changer, but that's a a bit out as like most of those things are even in beta from the cloud providers. So there's not really real production support for this stuff yet. Uh, but it is somewhere that we should all be looking. Um, and then, you know. There's some cool stuff with like multi-party, right? Like threshold unlocks multi-party uh, options for signing. And so much in the same way that if you use multiple cloud providers, trusted execution environments, if you have another layer, then it's even better. Those types of options though, like are probably only reasonable with the largest institutions that have also significant like technical uh, resources and acumen, at least like in the short or medium term. Yeah, and like some of the multi-party stuff, th- there's like no private key anymore. Um, it's kind of magic to me, but um, it-, it seems like an interesting area. You know, I think it's how we get safer, like how these networks become safer. And, and you know, it could be part of how adoption happens uh, in maybe more uh, more like fault less fault tolerant industries that are looking at this stuff saying, well, like, okay, we're relying on these people to like, how's this one private key somewhere safely? Like, I don't know, are we going to audit a hundred validators to use this platform? Probably not. But if there's some of these solutions start to exist that can be talked about, I think that that, that goes a long way to, to helping some of these companies adopt this infrastructure. Yeah. We have a team working on like something I think is really cool. It's a, 
It's called Substrate TE, and it's a, like a Substrate Light client that runs inside of a inside S, Intel SGX, and so you can use this as a remote signer. So instead of you might just have like a dummy machine that will just like sign whatever payload you give it, but instead of that, you actually put a light client of the node in SGX and send the payload to that, and it can actually verify that it's signing a valid block on a known chain and stuff like this is like really like next level. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think, yeah, the, the protocol team is building out stuff like that as tools and references for the community is, is a huge, huge need and step forward. Um, I'm excited to see that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. Sounds amazing. Uh, yeah. It, it's not, it's not from parody internally. It's, um, it's from supercomputing systems down in Zurich. Um, but they've been working on it for a while and have been long-term users of Substrate. So um, I'm really excited to see what they do because it's pretty neat. Yeah. Cool. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks for coming on. Where should people go to check out Bison Trails? Uh, just bisontrails.co, uh, our website, or on Twitter, uh, Bison Trails. Uh, we're around. All right, cool. Thanks for coming on, Aaron. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. 